the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program was pre-recorded, and the views expressed do not necessarily represent those of this station or its management. We don't need no education. We don't need no thought control. Get ready to take notes, because school is now in session. Tackling the biggest issues in education, this is Education America. Save the classroom, save the country. Here are your hosts, Headmaster Rebecca Hagstrom and co-host Abigail Johnson. Welcome to Education America, where we're working to save the classroom so that we can save the country. K-12 education is the playing field where the battle is on for the future of our country. And as the 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, succinctly stated, the philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation will be the philosophy of government in the next. Well, good evening to our listeners. And Abigail, it's nice to be with you again this evening. It sure is. It is fantastic. And listeners, we have just an absolutely incredible guest with us for the next few episodes. I know you are going to glean so much from listening to her We welcome to the studio Nancy Percy. Nancy Percy is the author of her most recent book is The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. And then she also has a full list of other books that honestly, I have have all of them in my Amazon inbox going, okay, I I need to at least get through one, one before I buy the next one. But she has written books such as The Souls of Science, Finding Truth and Total Truth, and also Love Thy Body. She is a professor and scholar in residence at Houston Christian University and is absolutely amazing, is going to enlighten us on some of these topics. Nancy, welcome to our show. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I appreciate it. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, before we uh, did our opening here, you and I and Abigail got speaking um, just a little bit about our backgrounds and your backgrounds. And I think it would be really helpful before we get started talking about your book um, for people to hear how it is that you really um, got into this space of education and this understanding of um, worldview and the understanding of uh, masculinity and how that has been shaped over the years. All of this really comes back to a time in your life where you were working with some other moms. Is that correct in Missouri? Right. So I was in Missouri and there was a group of moms who were very concerned about public education and they'd done a lot of research and they wanted to start a newsletter, but they didn't have anyone to write it for them. <laughs> and so they got connected with me And the reason that I mentioned that before we got on the air is because I felt like when I went to your website, I thought, these are kindred spirits. (laughs) Yes, we are. (laughs) (laughs) These are people. These are my people. Yes. Um, Because I spent some time there. The the group that was formed was called uh, Missourians for Educational Excellence. 
and their goal was to just educate parents on how incredibly liberal um, and anti-Christian the public schools had become, even even back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that was before we had the Internet or anything. Yes. And the, the irony is that up until then, I was actually fairly liberal myself. Uh, I, I think anyone who goes through public education here in America mm-hmm. ends up yes. liberal because it's the only perspective you ever hear. Thank you. And yeah. it was when I was working with these moms, they just fed me all the research they had done on a whole host of issues, because if you're talking about education, you can talk about any field. You know, education covers every field. Yeah. Um, I remember especially humanities and economics and social science, social so, so, uh, social studies is yes, what you yes. call it at, yep. that, at the, that age, right? Uh-huh. Um, and and they, it explained what the, what the um, conservative political position was, and I was totally convinced. And so it was actually <laughs> life-changing for me that when I actually got educated on the schools and what they were teaching, um, that's what changed my whole perspective. I never called myself a conservative before. Even then, I was a little nervous about it. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. That's okay. That's, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's fa- fascinating, and I have to say that has been eye-opening for me. I have done I've done seven years of higher education now at. I'm sure with being a professor, you've done even more than that. But I would absolutely agree with your perspective, Nancy, that I was in in some of the highest levels of education that you can obtain. And yet some of the things that I am reading now, the people that because of the Internet and so grateful for the ways that that allows information to spread, you really learn, oh, my goodness, this way of thinking not only is out there, but it isn't this pie in the sky based on wishful thinking. It it's it's very well reasoned, mm-hmm. and I, I yeah, love learning from yeah. voices like yours because mm-hmm. you do anchor that so well. Um, not only in this book, but I've I've listened to a number of interviews that you've done, and you anchor everything in facts and data. You're using logic. You're using reason, and it just absolutely blows me away. And I'm so thankful that thanks to, again, modern media, it's a little bit easier now than it was even, I mean, 15 years ago to be able to access other points of view if you're if you're looking for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I like the way you put the, um, you, you drew attention to the data. This is the most fact-based book I've ever written hmm. um, because I deal with the sociological data on Christian men and then I do the historical facts on where did the secular script for masculinity come from? Because we need to know the secular script, too, so that we have a critical grid. Let me tell you an anecdote. Uh, One of my former graduate students emailed me not long ago and said, all of my male students, she's now teaching high school. Okay. And she said, all my male students are fans of Andrew Tate. Oh, my gosh. And uh, she said they're they're using Andrew Tate quotes in the the yearbook. Mm -hmm. I said, well, where do you teach? She said, at a classical Christian school. No way. No way. So that, that was amazing. And, and that, you know what? I put that on the Internet. I put that on Twitter yesterday. I know. I saw it. I liked it. <laughs> immediately, when I put it on Twitter, I got people saying, my fifth graders are into Andrew Tate. My fourth grader what? came home talking about Andrew Tate. Where are they? So mm. the, the secular view of masculinity is permeating everywhere, even into our Christian schools. And that's why we need to teach 
especially our young boys, how to be critical thinkers about the subject of masculinity. Mm. Is that why you decided to tackle this topic? Because you saw what a huge impact it was having on our nation or what what drew you to dig into this? You know, I first was drawn in just by the incredible hostility that it's become socially acceptable to express against men. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a headline that caught my eye in the Washington Post, and the headline was, Why Can't We Hate Men? Oh, my goodness. Really? Really? Oh, my goodness. Uh, A Huffington Post editor tweeted, hashtag, kill all men. Oh, my goodness. You can, there are books now where the titles are incredibly blunt, like, I hate men, and no good men, and are men necessary? Oh, <laughs> my books that are out goodness. There. And to my surprise, even men are some, some men are jumping on the bandwagon. Oh, yes. There's a fairly, fairly known uh, male author who wrote a book in which he said, talking about healthy masculinity is like talking about healthy cancer. Oh, my goodness. Why? Oh, this my was, goodness. This one's not in the book because it's more recent, but you may have seen it. It was in the news, the director of the movie Avatar Oh, really? yes, I did see that. I yes. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Sure did. James Cameron. Thompson. Yep. James Cameron. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. goodness. So, so this is really the first reason I wanted to write it was I need to get to the bottom of this. Where is this coming from? Because as Christians, you know, you cannot stand against a social trend unless you know where it came from and how it developed. Mm-hmm. And so yes. that was what I wanted to do in the book mm-hmm. is just educate Christians on where it's coming from so we can so we can stand against it with a biblical view of masculinity. Right. Yes. Well, one of the things that we wanted to start with was um, talking about how your book says that criticisms of men began much earlier than most of us think. You know, you were just talking about a recent WAPO statement. Um, But where did the idea of toxic masculinity come from? What is some historical background on that? Yeah, it turns out you have to go much further back than you might think, because I run into people who usually think, well, maybe 1960s, you know, second wave feminism. Yeah. But you have to go all the way back to the Industrial Revolution, Hmm. because before that, by the way, before that, we were primarily a Christian nation, too. Yes. It was a very biblically informed view of masculinity, and men worked all day with their wives and children on the family farm, the family industry, the family business. And so they were much closer to their family. In fact, the cultural expectations on men focused much more on their caretaking role. Uh, their, the very definition of authority, like the head of the home, was who is responsible for the common good? Mm-hmm. You know, authority mm-hmm. didn't mean you get to do what you want, right? right. Authority mm-hmm. meant you were responsible for the common good of the whole family. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's fun to see even secular historians recognize this. Like one historian said, the definition of masculine virtue was, quote, duty to God and man, unquote. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the question then becomes, where did we lose yeah, that? Yeah, where did we go wrong? And, and and there were two things that happened. One was the Industrial Revolution, because that took men, well, it took work out of the home, which meant men had to follow their work out of the home. Mm-hmm. And for the first time, men were not working with their family members, with people they loved and had a moral bond with. Instead, they were working as individuals in competition with yeah. other men. Mm-hmm. And that's when you begin to see the literature change. The literature of the day, people began to protest that men were losing that caretaking ethos of the colonial age, that they were becoming egocentric, self-centered, aggressive, 
competitive, greedy and acquisitive, to use mm. the language of the 19th century. And I was surprised to find how often they said men are turning their jobs into their idol. You know, they're making oh. an idol out of career success. Hmm. And at the same time that that was happening, our culture was becoming more secular, and it was partly also a result of the Industrial Revolution, because all of a sudden you had this huge public-private split, which you didn't have before. And in the public arena, you had not only factories and businesses, but financial institutions, universities, and of course the state. And people began to say that these public institutions should should operate by, quote-unquote, scientific principles by which they really meant value-free. Mm, yes. In other words, don't, don't bring your private values into the public arena. And since it was mostly men getting that secular education and working in that secular environment, they did become secular earlier than women did, historically mm-hmm. speaking. Mm. And, and as a result, in the 19th century, there was a huge increase in crime, drinking, gambling, gang mm-hmm. activity, and prostitution. Mm. Um, the number of, of brothels... Um, mushroomed. Sometimes a single fact can help crystallize it. So here's one. In 1830, Americans drank three times as much as they do today. Really? Whoa! In 1830? Can you imagine wow. their livers? Oh, oh my, my goodness. <laughs> Maybe that's why <laughs> that's the reason there was the... a temperance movement. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so in other words, the secular, as the secular view of masculinity took hold, men's behavior did grow worse. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, so that's what we're seeing today. When people protest that masculinity is toxic, what they're really protesting is the secular view, which hasn't, of course, could have let men off the hook in terms of asking them to live up to a biblical ethic in their understanding of what it means to be a man. Mm-hmm. Yep, mm-hmm. That absolutely makes sense. Um, I think you mentioned in your book that masculine traits are not intrinsically toxic. They're good when directed to virtuous ends. And the Bible calls, to your point here, the Bible calls men to be both tough and tender, both courageous and caring. Men who know they are made in God's image can be full persons, reflecting all the rich dimensions of God's own character. It's interesting that you commented on that. I just actually had a conversation with one of my teachers yesterday, and in his 10th grade Bible class, he had a discussion on what does it mean to be made in God's image. And they had a a whole long conversation about this, and they talked about the value that brings to a life. And um, some of them even drew comparisons then with Nazi Germany and how life was not valued. And um, when we don't view people as being image bearers of God, um, the value of them deteriorates as well. But um, you're drawing on that specifically for the for what is a biblical view of masculinity. And I think that's an important message we should be teaching all of our kids, I guess, especially. But I mean, um, for sons to know that God is that you are an image bearer of God and he is, you know, father to all. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one role of being an image bearer of God that uh, a man can take on. Well, yeah, uh, you're going back to Genesis. You know, mm-hmm. God creates humans in his own image. And, you know, the very next thing he said, the, the scripture says God created humans in, in his image, male and female. What's the very next thing he says? The next thing he gives is the cultural mandate. And since you guys are educators, mm-hmm. I'm sure that you mm-hmm. teach your students yep. the cultural mandate. Yeah. Um, when, when God creates the human beings, 
first thing he does is he gives them a job description. Yeah. He says, why did I create you? Yeah. Yes. And in the highly streamlined language of Genesis 1, we can sort of unpack many layers. Uh, be fruitful and multiply and yeah. subdue the earth. So be fruitful and multiply. Uh, if you read anthropologists, you know that that doesn't mean just the family, because the family is the foundation for all of the other social institutions. Mm-hmm. It becomes a, a tribe, a clan, a, a nation, and you need social institutions for particular functions, like you need a government, you need a school, you need a church, you mm-hmm. need a marketplace. So uh, be fruitful and multiply actually means develop all the social institutions. And subdue the earth means harness the natural resources. Mm-hmm. So, of course, most societies begin with agriculture, but then they go to mining and they go to technology and they go to uh, inventing computers mm-hmm. <laughs> and composing music. I had a student once who said, oh, come on, composing music? So I said, I play the violin. What's the violin made out of? Wood. Wood. <laughs> right. <laughs> What's the bow made out of? Horsehair. So all the transcendent beauty that we associate with music starts with harnessing the natural resources in the creation that God has given us. Mm-hmm. And so I think bringing men in particular back to this gives them a very rich sense of vocation, that mm-hmm. they are supposed to be you know, rolling up their sleeves yep. and being deeply involved in their community and in productive work that glorifies God and benefits their fellow man. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, um, it gives men a sense of, it's very balanced, because I have, I've heard from some Christian men that they feel like um, the church has been feminized. And mm-hmm. so this is very balanced, because it says, yes, you're supposed to invest in your family, but you're also supposed to be- invest in work. Yes. And so it's not either or. You know, men have a chance to be vo- both deeply involved with their family, loving relationships, but they also have scope for the sense of ambition and calling and achievement and impact. So it's, it's a wonderful, uh, the cultural mandate is a wonderful way to unpack masculinity, uh, mm-hmm. you know, pre-fall, right? This is before the fall. Mm-hmm. What was God's original calling for men? Mm-hmm. Go and name everything. Yeah, go name everything. Well, I, you know, yeah. take, and, and I and yeah. you think, boy, that's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. I mean, even in Eden. That, <laughs> that, I mean, to come up with how many different insects animals, creatures of the sea and of the earth, like, boy, he must have been working hard coming up with all of those names. (laughs) (laughs) Nancy, another uh, point that you have made in your book relates to evangelical Christian men um, and that there is this um, notion, especially amongst non-Christians, I would argue, Um, that evangelical Christian men are oppressive patriarchs. You know, you hear about the patriarchal oppression of Christianity and and even now extending to just the West in general, um, being prone to abuse and what have you. Um, But as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, this is one of your most uh, data-driven, research-based books that you've ever written, and you make a surprising claim, not not surprising to Abigail and I, but maybe to the world, um, that those very evangelical Christian men who are being accused of being oppressive patriarchs prone to abuse actually have the lowest levels of abuse of abuse and lowest levels of divorce. Um, can you elaborate on that? Yes, I love this because I, I didn't expect to find this. You know, I kind of stumbled across this data. 
by the way, in the book, I start with giving examples of people saying that evangelical men are exhibit A yes. of toxic masculinity. And I'll give you just one. So this is the co-founder of the Church Two movement, which followed the Me Too movement. Oh, okay. I have not heard and of she, this, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and she said that theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. Oh, my today. gosh. Oh. So, but what happened is social scientists, like psychologists and sociologists, were listening to these accusations and saying, well, where's your evidence? You know, you're making these charges, but where's your data? Right. Mm-hmm. So they went out and did the studies. And in my book, I quote about a dozen different studies that all found that the secular, the secular accusations were completely debunked yes. by the evidence that Christian, evangelical Christian men who attend church regularly. Yes, and that was crucial in this study. I'm sorry to interrupt. But I did find that fascinating, you know, with, I always like to, let's define our terms. And I thought, well, how are they going to define, because you did talk about, you know, more deeply committed Christian men. I thought, well, how will they define that? Mm -hmm. Because you did draw that there is a difference between men who occasionally attend church and those that are that are regularly attending. So I I'm I apologize but I think it's important for the listener to understand mm-hmm. how profound this study is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, some people some people have tried to define committed in different ways like asking how often do you pray or do you feel close to God, but they found that you can pretty much correlate it with just attending church. Mm-hmm. Interesting. People who are c- committed attention, and that's a very measurable outcome, right? That's mm-hmm. not that's not a fuzzy. It's something you can measure. It's quantifiable. And so, young uh, evangelical men who attend church actually test out as the most loving and engaged husbands and fathers. Their wives report the highest level of happiness. They are the most engaged with their children, both in shared activities like sports and church youth group. And in discipline, like enforcing bedtime and limits on screen time. Mm-hmm. And it turns out they're the least likely to divorce, 35% less likely to divorce than secular couples. Wow. And they have the lowest rate of domestic violence of any group in America. And sometimes a quote can really pull it together. So let me give you a really cool quote. Um, the the sociologist who did the largest study is Brad Wilcox at the University of Virginia. He's considered one of the top marriage researchers in the country, and he gets, he gets published in places like the New York Times. It gives you a sense of his stature. Yeah, that's so, for sure. <laughs> so this was a quote from the New York Times. He wrote, um, it turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Wow. Of course, they're addressing the wives because the assumption is that these marriages are oppressive to wives. Right. Right. <laughs> the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Fully 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have high quality marriages. Wow. And That's powerful. Uh, exactly. This is so contrary to what most people hear. In fact, here's how he goes on. This is actually my favorite part of the quote, because it, he turns to his fellow academicians, right? And he says, academics need to cast aside their prejudices. I love it. About re- religious conservatives and evangelicals in particular, because conservative Protestant married men with children are consistently the most active and expressive fathers and the most in- emotionally engaged husbands. So this is the bottom line. We, as Christians, we really do have an answer to 
Reconciling the Sexes. Yes. I put it in the subtitle. And it's not just a pep talk from a religious leader. This is yes. actual, rigorous, empirical data. Uh, it's, it's evidence-based findings that we should be bold about bringing into the public square mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and arguing for a, a Christian view of masculinity. Yeah, that is so powerful. 73%, that is very high. And boy, and and how... how um, I guess, you know, brave of this Brad Wilcox to make that statement that we need to set aside our prejudices. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we always hear one group constantly say, follow the science. Um, But (laughs) somehow when the science is inconvenient, it doesn't always get followed. Um, So good for him for making for making that call. Um, so we are already winding down on our time here on our first show with you. Um, but let's talk about how y- you mentioned in your book that um, men are being torn between two competing scripts for masculinity. Um, can you share what those two competing scripts are? Yeah, I love this. It was also a study done by a sociologist. Mm-hmm. Um And I put it right at the front of the book. And the reason I did, a little background here, is that this has proved to be the most controversial book I've written. Oh, my. Interesting. Surprise. Interesting. Right. Because my earlier book, Love Thy Body, was on things like abortion and homosexuality and transgenderism. And, you know, those are more controversial issues I would have thought. But in the Christian world, masculinity is such a trigger word. I tend to do a lot of reading groups on my books in order to get a lot of feedback Hmm. in the process. And when my reading groups, and I teach it in my classes, they would tell their friends and family they were going through a book on masculinity. And invariably, the first question was, whose side is she on? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Implying there is only two sides. That's it. Yeah. Talk about a fallacy. And that has to be polemical. So men tended to assume that a woman writing a book on masculinity was some male-bashing feminist. Mm -hmm. And more progressive types tended to assume I was some reactionary culture warrior type. And so I put this survey at the beginning of the book because it helped kind of diffuse that uh, that initial hostility or suspicion. So this is uh, a, a very well-known sociologist, and so he gets invited to speak all around the world, and he came up with a very clever experiment. He said uh, he would talk to young men, and he would ask them two questions. First question was, what does it mean if, to be a good man? Mm-hmm. You know, if you had a funeral and then the eulogy, somebody says he was a good man. What does that mean? And the sociologist said all around the world, young men had no trouble answering that question. They would immediately start listing things like honor, duty, integrity, sacrifice, do the right thing, stand up for the little guy, yes, be a provider, be a protector, be responsible. And he would say, well, where'd you learn that? And they would say, I don't know. It's just mm-hmm. in the air we breathe. Or if they were in a Western country, they would sometimes say it's part of our Judeo-Christian heritage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then he would follow up with a second question. He'd say, what does it mean if I say to you, man up, be a real man? And the young men would say, no, 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 that's completely different. That means be tough, be strong, never show weakness, um, suck it up, win at all costs, be competitive, competitive, get rich, get laid. I'm using their language. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So those are really powerful um, dichotomies. So we are winding down here on these last few seconds here, Nancy, and I think we need to pick up 
with that topic on our next show because this is too important to just end right now, but we have to. So So listeners, please tune in next week for as we continue this fascinating discussion with Nancy Percy. Nancy, thank you so much for joining us. And man, we cannot wait for the rest of this conversation. Yes. Um, And again, if you want to get this book, it's called The Toxic War on Masculinity by Nancy Percy. And she has written many excellent books. We highly recommend that you look her up. And then listen to this podcast or any other podcast on um, Spotify or iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Have a good night. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.